Hi, this is Julie. And Annie. That noise you just heard is the sound of democracy. We're printing our absentee ballots here in Vienna, Austria, to make sure our vote counts on November 6th. This podcast was recorded at 5.06 p.m. on Thursday, November 1st. Things may have changed. <laughs> Annie, who are we kidding? Things will have definitely changed. By the time you hear this, here's, here's the, the show! Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of the week's biggest political stories. President Trump gave a White House speech on immigration just days before the midterm elections, and an NPR poll found that 80% of Americans think incivility in our politics will lead to violence. But who do they blame? I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. So, Scott, let's start with you. You're there at the White House. The president gave this speech this afternoon, right around, what, 4.15 in the afternoon. It was televised on a lot of places. Places uh, billed as an immigration speech, but did we get a sense of if there's sort of anything new in this speech? There wasn't a lot new. Uh, this was nominally a speech directed at that caravan of Central American migrants slowly making its way through Mexico, and the president said, Turn around, go back, you're wasting your time. But what this was really aimed at was the, the red meat base of the Republican Party, the people in Donald Trump's base who are most concerned about illegal immigration and to whom he has really tailored his message in these final days of the 2018 midterm election campaign. And not just the people who care about it. He wants to make more of his supporters care about this because he believes that this is something that will motivate them to come out. And I was waiting to hear, is he going to do away with asylum? There had been reports that he would do that. He certainly wants to make it harder. He told us that next week he'll have an executive order that will flesh out the details of this. But to me, I was at the rally last night in Florida, and this speech was very, very similar to what he said at the rally. He says, once these people arrive, the Democrat Party's vision is to offer them free health care and the right to vote. This was essentially like a campaign speech given yes, in, in the, the lens House. of the White House. Yes. And and you've got to wonder the optics about this then. Is this because he, he wanted to reach an audience that maybe he can't always reach? I think he's rally? frustrated and he feels this is the issue that's going to help Republicans. He wants to get more coverage for it. And um, maybe he feels the rallies aren't enough, but he decided to use the venue of the White House to press this idea that these criminals are coming. They're in. It's an invasion is the word he used. And uh, we have to stop them. So there is a certain seriousness that comes with a White House speech oh, yeah. with a podium. This isn't the president in front of a crowd at a rally. This isn't the president on the lawn of the White House shouting over the helicopter. By doing it in this setting, he was saying, hey, pay attention. There's going to be a serious policy discussion here. Or that's the signal that he they sent to the media that made CNN carry it live, whereas CNN and even Fox has not been carrying his rallies live on TV anymore. This did get carried live. But there was a little bait and switch there because underneath the rhetoric, there was very little actual substance. The president talked about finalizing a plan to maybe tweak the way the United States deals with asylum seekers. He talked about maybe indefinitely detaining migrant families while their asylum claims are being processed. Uh, he talked about things that are sure to face legal challenges if he ever actually does them and which probably are facing legal challenges within the White House itself. He's probably got some smart lawyers who tell him 
telling him, Mr. President, you can't do that. He's frustrated. He wants to say something. He wants to throw some red meat to the base. And that's why we got what we got today. And to some degree, though, we have seen that immigration does play very well with his base. In fact, I was just looking at some um, research from Google, which has been tracking, you know, sort of an uptick in search trends and whatnot. And they they say that they've seen an uptick. I think it was about 25 percent of House districts um, are seeing sort of an increase in search around immigration. So, I mean, look, it's one metric, but perhaps it does seem to be working with a a potential sector of his base. Yeah, and Google searches are like, lots of people complain about that as being a really mediocre metric for a lot of things. And I don't fully understand all the arguments about Google searches. But what I'll say is that there's a Kaiser Family Foundation poll done very recently asking voters, what is your number one issue? And among Republican voters, the thing that ranked the highest that got the most people saying this is my number one issue was immigration. Mm -hmm. With independent voters and with Democratic voters, it was way down on the list. It wasn't anywhere near as important as it is for Republican voters. And in fact, it may be a turnoff for some of those independent voters and some of the suburban voters in in those kinds of districts where the House races may be decided. This is the big bet that Donald Trump is making, that he can juice up his base with with this kind of argument that's based on immigration, race, crime, fear. And he's willing to take the risk of turning off independent voters, turning off college-educated women. This is a real risk. I mean, he could win in the short term, boost some turnout among his base. But over the long term, uh, he is chipping away, I think, at the Republican Party's appeal. Mara, you and I were watching this video that President Trump tweeted out yesterday. Um, it it has this man, this convicted murderer who killed police in California. Uh, and it has all of this. He's like laughing about killing police. And, and then it has this imagery of the caravan and people pulling on fences. This is very violent imagery in this video. And clearly the president is trying to build up that fear. Right. And with the Chiron, Democrats led him into the country. You know, that that video that, that we've been talking about, it's been pinned to Donald Trump's Twitter account. So clearly he's banking on the fact that this is a successful strategy for him. And maybe his calculation is that he just wants to focus on the Senate and that he will help Republicans maintain control of the Senate, maybe do well with a few governor's races. And, and that maybe for him is considered a, a win to some degree. And that's why he's focused so much on immigration, despite the fact, like Mara said, you said, that this is not necessarily a, a win strategy in a number of these contested House races. Right. And over the long term for Republicans. But look, the the Senate battleground is is Trump states. It's where he can go. It's where he has some ability to move voters. And that's where he's been focusing. All right. We're going to leave that there. Thank you so much, Mara, Tam and Scott. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. And we are going to let you go. And when we come back, we're going to have a new crew and we'll be talking all about how scared people are about the culture of incivility in this country. Support for this program comes from Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is self installed wireless protection for your home. The company was founded by an electrical engineer whose friends were burglarized. They wanted home security, but most systems were too complicated and too expensive. So he built Simply Safe. Now they protect over 2 million people. And with Simply Safe, there are no annual contracts. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/npr politics. 
Support for NPR Politics also comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, introducing their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/nprpolitics. Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Florida is one of only three states that don't let ex-felons vote. I'm 73 years old. I don't have no more criminal background. I work. I pay taxes. I'm a good person. Why can't they let me vote? Hear why that might change on Embedded. And we're back. And joining me now is Aisha Roscoe, Ron Elving, and Domenico Montanaro. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Hello. Hey. All right. Well, let us just take a minute to take stock, I would say, of the past two weeks, because I think they have felt rather turbulent for a lot of people between the mail bombs that were sent to Democratic leaders and then the mass shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue. Domenico, I know you've been reporting about a new NPR PBS Marist poll that focuses on this question of civility. And one sort of top line result from that I found somewhat startling, but also really intriguing. And this is that 80 percent of voters say they are concerned that the lack of civility will lead to violence. You know, it's the one thing that uh, in the poll people actually across ideological lines agree on, that they say that they're concerned that that tone can lead to violence. And some would argue it already has. Mm-hmm. Right. So the but the issue here is who do they blame? Right. And who and that is starkly divided. And frankly, you know, I was going to say a lot of people are just in their corners, very polarized. I mean, but if we look at who people say they blame, more people blame President Trump than uh, Democrats and Republicans bickering or uh, the media for how it's reported on some of the stuff. How many, like how large of a percentage? So overall, uh, about 40 percent of Americans say that they blame President Trump. Uh, When you look at uh, the media, 29% of people say they blame the media for the lack of uh, civility and tone. In the poll, do we also have a sense of whether or not people are aspiring to a different uh, tone or if they they do want this civility to be different than what it looks like right now? Well, what they do say is that the tone, three quarters of people say that the tone has gotten worse under President Trump. And that's significant because it's far higher than when Barack Obama was president. President Trump is a different president, a different politician than what the U.S. has seen in modern history. And he is someone who is known for name calling, insulting his opponents in very personal ways. And when he talks about immigration, illegal immigration is crime. And these criminals are going to come into the U.S. and hurt people. And that is what he is feeding to the people that support him, to his supporters. And so they're getting worked up because they're being told the Democrats love crime. And if you vote for Democrats, crime is coming. Those are very stark terms. Those aren't terms where we're all going to come together. That language is just not going to do but that. But isn't it the perennial question, though, that people have been asking about Trump ever since he came into office, which is whether he created the, the these conditions or whether he tapped into pre-existing conditions that were already apparent in this country? 
listening to the poll and who's to blame, one thing is not in there is the American people, which we are, we're all <laughs> Americans. Like, some of this is just a reflection of the people who were answering the poll. <laughs> I'm not saying that they're bad. What I'm saying is as human beings, when these people are elected, if you don't like the, the politicians, they are elected by American people. Uh, the media, they may not be hired by, but the, the media is a reflection. If you don't like it, you won't read it. You won't sure. look at it. You won't. You, you can't take the, the personal responsibility out of that. This is a reflection of America as a whole. Yeah. I mean, voters, it's a great point that Aisha is making because voters do not reward bipartisanship. <laughs> You know, the fact of the matter is the more bipartisan you are, the more that you're seen as reaching across the aisle and being friends with somebody or giving them a hug or whatever. That image is what goes around in primaries in particular. And these people wind up getting voted out of office. You know, it's funny. People will say that they want compromise, but really what they want is people to compromise to their position. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say, though, that if everyone in the country voted, there is a better chance that some degree of bipartisanship and cooperation would be rewarded. But that's not the case. The people who do vote, especially in primaries, but also in November, uh, tend to be the people who care the most, and the people who tend to care the most are not in favor of cooperation and bipartisanship. So that's the portion of the electorate that actually gets out there and gets the job done, and that's then the reason we have the politicians we have and the kind of politics that we have. I mean, one of the things you see in a lot of polls is that people have a sense of anxiety in part because of impending demographic change that, that folks see as inevitable, right? I was looking at um, the American Values Survey that uh, PRRI does every year, and they ask this question about the impact of the U.S. becoming majority non-white by 2045. And you see that uh, about two-thirds of Republicans see that as a negative change. And yet a very small percentage, maybe 19 percent of Democrats see that as negative. And it falls clearly along partisan lines. But it's got me thinking a lot about this is something that is like an inevitable demographic reality that is very hard to reverse at this point. And it seems to be exacerbating the way that people feel. I don't think there's any question about it. This is what is different from other periods of turmoil in our politics. We had great racial strife in 1968. We had riots in many of our major cities. And what is different about this is that there was no question in 1968 what the relative size of the races was going to be in the future. There was no question that the white people of America were going to be the majority. But now we are literally talking about a very different looking country, a demographically transformed country, much more diverse, many more people speaking Spanish. And that has changed the attitude of a lot of folks who used to think of themselves as, you know, kind of tolerant, kind of fine. But now they don't feel the same way. And these ideas of a country in which their kind, their Anglo personality is no longer dominant, but actually maybe only a plurality or something like California where it's less than 40%. And people find that upsetting. They don't like it perhaps. And even if they don't find it upsetting, it's a little unsettling. You know, Asma, you've brought up before the fact that uh, the majority of kindergartners are already non-white. So even if you put up a wall and add some fence to it and, you know, add a biodome over the United <laughs> States so that nobody can get in or any planes or anything, it's already at the point where it's going to be that way because the majority of kindergartners and are already non-white. Up. Exactly. Yeah. And I do think that that 
you know, concerns people, but it also, to me, kind of heightens this feeling that people have of very tribal politics. For a long time, we had seen African-American voters vote more Democratic, but I think what we are seeing is increasingly also Latinos and Asian-Americans vote more Democratic since the 1990s, right? And and so increasingly, we are in this situation where your race, uh, you could argue your religion as well, kind of I don't want to say is a predictor because who knows what's the cause or the effect, but it aligns with your party politics. Well, right now, uh, after this election in November of this year, uh, more than 80 percent, something like 85 percent or more of the Republicans in the House of Representatives are going to be white males. More than 85 percent of the Republicans in the House of Representatives are going to be white males. How many white males are there among the Democratic caucus in the same body in the House of Representatives? That number is going to fall below 40 percent. I also find it fascinating that we have kind of two things going on in this country when it comes to place. You know, there's this urbanization Mm -hmm. where you have a lot of young people moving to cities and moving to urban areas, while at the same time, we have a lot of older voters who are exactly the kinds of people who moved out of cities during the race riots and you have all this white flight. I grew up in a place where you have already have multiple languages on a, on ballots where, you know, there queens, are right? in, in, yeah. in Queens, in Flushing, Queens in particular. Um, I mean, you know what? It's a huge South Asian population. Um, there are very few white people and it used to be a largely white area. And now, I mean, is just not at all. I mean, there's no English on the on a lot of the business signs and uh, in the in the downtown portion and a lot of the people in Long Island uh, are people who left because they didn't like t- what was happening with the demographic change and now that that's sort of happening in different parts of the country you see president trump firing up a lot of the white grievance that some of those folks have feeling like it's getting closer to them I I do think that when we talk about that word tribalism, which a lot of people will take issues with that word, I think when you talk about people kind of dividing up and voting either, we don't know whether because of race or or voting along racial lines, I think you, you, you also have to take very seriously that a lot of people, when they're involved in politics and they're talking about politics, they're talking about things that they feel like are threats to their lives. So if you are a black person and you are concerned about police brutality and things like this, these are life or death situations. And so you feel like you are going to align with a party that is going to do the most to protect you and another party that you feel like may not be protecting you, like your life could be on the line. I think sometimes it can be minimalized, like, oh, well, black people are just voting for Democrats. There are reasons and rational reasons why people may vote the way they do. And some of it is that they feel that there that there are issues that need to be addressed and have to be addressed. So, you know, one thing that we cannot ignore is that we're living in a time with social media where we can access and see so many different points of view, but also increasingly uh, avoid those points of view, right? And sort of just reinforce what we already think. And I, I don't know that we can really have this conversation about civility without talking about social media and technology and the role that that is playing in, in just the overall tone of our politics. Social media heightens tensions because people get on social media and it's like you are trained to say your point of view, not care about what anyone else thinks. 
And basically, to kind of, it, it's so different from face-to-face interactions. You don't have to be polite. You can just tell someone, oh, I don't want to hear what you have to say. That's stupid or whatever. And you can block them or and you mute can, them, which ex- you can't do that easily in real life. You know? Exactly. And so when you're behind a computer screen, people get really bold and talk the way they would never talk if they were facing someone uh, in person. Many people have compared 2018 to that other tumultuous year 50 years ago, 1968. And one of the biggest issues of that year, and perhaps the overwhelming issue, was the Vietnam War, which was real to people as no war had ever been before because television was taking us to the war every single night mm-hmm. on the evening news. They called mm-hmm. it the Living Room War. And that had a tremendous effect on the anti-war movement and on people's sense that it was futile and the sense also just of how bloody and destructive it was for the Vietnamese as well as, of course, for our men. And it was overwhelming the sense that technology had changed this key issue of war and peace. And now I think with the technological changes of our time, discourse, just the way we encounter politics and each other, has fundamentally changed because of technology. So, Ron, you were just talking about 1968, and that was a year of our history that was really turbulent in terms of racial strife. And, you know, that was 50 years ago at this point. And so I'm curious if you have some thoughts. I mean, we inevitably as a country did move on from that point. So are there lessons learned that could maybe be instructive for where we are right now with our politics? Absolutely. That that was a terrible time of tumult and uh, racial rioting in our major cities. Uh, it was a presidential election year in which one of the candidates for president was assassinated uh, after winning the California primary. And Martin Luther King was assassinated in that same welter of violence that we went through in the spring of 1968. It was a terrible year in many respects. However, if you go back over what happened in the years after, you can find terrible things that happened. You can find enormously heartening things that happened. Whole lifetimes of good and bad happened after 1968. And as a body politic, we probably came to a greater understanding of each other. We probably came to at least some degree of progress with respect to all of these divisions. That's, this is not to say they've been eradicated. And now, as we've learned, they can be brought back to the fore. They can be excited again. They can be aggravated. And they can be agitated again. But we did but it learn. it took a while, though, Rod. It, <laughs> I mean, it took a while. And, and not everything got better after 1968. Not everything got worse after 1968. We went on. And we, uh, in many respects, we, we found our way to resolutions on many issues. You're talking about the, the 60s. Uh, uh, my uh, father, my uncle, and aunt, you know, they all grew up, they grew up in Newark in the 60s. So they lived through it. So I've heard my uncle tell stories about the riots and they were in the projects. Tanks pointed out the projects, like I, hearing the stories about it and how the chaos of it, I was, I was shocked. But I would also say that there's a sense of, well, we got through those times. There are people that didn't get through those times. And, and, and from my uncle, he always talks about how out of his neighborhood, his friends, he's one of him and like his best friend are like one of the only ones that are left. The rest of them didn't the, survive. Yeah, and he's he's turning 65 this year. They did not survive. So I think that we have to be very mindful when we talk about these issues and these tough times that people go through that you don't just get through it. Some people, there are casualties. There are There is suffering in that. I do think that 
in all plausibility, if, even if we look at history, there is a high likelihood that things will get worse, that they could get worse before they even get better. And and look, we see these demographic shifts are going to happen down the road. And you can make the argument that until these demographic shifts are actually a reality, we'll continue to see this tension because it's going to be under the surface and it's still going to keep like it's a constant simmer the, the for, a, for a number of years. It could potentially be. With all that happened in 1968 and all of the awful memories that people carry, uh, we have tried as a country to come to terms with some of the things that happened then and and tried to expiate to some degree uh, for the loss of all the people who did not survive. And among other things, Martin Luther King's birthday is now a holiday. And when in the 1960s, when he was assa- when he was assassinated, I think is is one way to put it, uh, Martin Luther King was regarded widely in the United States as an agitator. Many in the FBI thought he was a communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, uh, in many people's view, gunned down by that attitude by people who thought he needed to be taken out, uh, and that was not just a fringe attitude. There were a great number of people who felt that way about him. And today he is revered uh, among the great heroes of American life. He is honored on the National Mall in a way that very few people are. And that shows that at least some lessons have been learned since 1968. Here's the thing that I I keep coming back to. You know, when you're in this kind of era of volatility where you have two parties and people within the country feeling like they have two very different views of what it means to be an American mm-hmm. and what they want America to be in the near to mid, you know, distant future. The one thing that we all have and agree on for the most part is that we have the right to vote and our elections are happen and you have a peaceful transfer tra- peaceful transfer of of power to from one party to another when things change you know when you look at the heart of democracy that really is the heart of democracy and when people try to talk about you know whether or not we're lurching toward autocracy or something different that's we're not there we're not some banana republic and if people like what the direction that president trump is taking the country they can vote for that and continue to do so and you have to respect that uh when it comes to the will of the people uh and if people don't like it in this country you have the power to change it well that brings us to election night next tuesday and as a heads up you can hear npr's live coverage of election night from your phone you can start to hear that tuesday night at 8 p.m if you hit play on the npr one app and follow the instructions to tap your screen it'll take you to live coverage after the newscast many of us here on the npr politics podcast team will be there live with results okay well we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with can't let it go Support for this podcast and the following message come from Grow With Google. Digital skills are becoming more and more important in today's economy. That's why Grow With Google is providing free online training and tools to help Americans learn the skills they need to succeed. Learn more about Grow With Google and get started by visiting google.com slash grow. Olympic gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar abused hundreds of women and girls for more than 20 years before he was caught. Hear how a team of women brought down a serial sexual predator. Believed, a new podcast for Michigan Radio and NPR. And we're back and we're going to close the show like we always do by talking about the one thing that we just cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Um, Aisha, would you like to start? Yes, so this week uh, was Halloween um, happened, 
And one of my favorite celebrities that people who listen to the pod will know is Beyonce. And she did different costumes, but the favorite costume. (laughs) She had like a costume change. Yeah, she did some costume changes. But the one that I really liked was she did Tony Braxton. She basically, she called herself Phony Braxton. And she had like the short Tony Braxton hair. And this was from Tony Braxton's first album. She did like another sad, the cover of Another Sad Love song which was Tony Braxton's first album which was the first album that I ever knew word for word um, and I definitely know another sad love song but I'm not going to sing it but first comes the strings then somebody screams <laughs> <laughs> have you all seen this picture by the way she looks it's pretty beautiful good. she looks Here, beautiful yeah, she did a she pretty manage, good job she how did, did Beyonce manage to make herself look beautiful <laughs> <laughs> she, it was beautiful and, and Tony Braxton gave her props for it and was like you're never phony never Tony Braxton Tony Braxton owned the 90s right uh, yeah. I mean like Unbreak My Heart was oh, like yeah, that was the like the anthem at all like my high school dances I was just like oh god no she is the legend living legend Tony Braxton so I just thought it was great to see like the melding of like two of my favorite different like generations different generations different times in my life that's a nice it's a nice nod it's like when I went for Halloween this year as Ron <laughs> the different generations came together. It was a little strange when you came to my house. Yeah, I know. All right, that's awesome. Uh, Dominica, you want to go next? Sure. Speaking of Halloween, uh, you know, it's apparently something that one member of the Senate can't let go is the fact that he that people confuse him for the Zodiac Killer, and <laughs> of Cruz. course, everyone knows that's Ted Cruz. Not that Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer, but he's happy to lean into uh, into that. And he tweeted out, you know, uh, whatever combination <laughs> coded of letter, coded letter. letter you know, that uh, said, happy Halloween, and he just tweeted that out. So, you know, he's trying to lean into it, but it's a little bit like my dad's on Facebook, you know, (laughs) because... Because yeah. it's like, you know, it's like a joke where people are doing it because they're making fun of him. Everyone <laughs> and now knows. he's trying to embrace <laughs> right. that. Yeah. Well, just... he's not known for being like the most like Comical personally likable, yeah. right? Like people complain about uh, Ted Cruz that way. So maybe he's trying to show a lighter side of himself. Yeah, right? he's, he's trying. himself yeah. so seriously. Now, I want, <laughs> but he didn't tweet out the costume. I mean, is, was no. he dressed as... I don't, what I, does a Zodiac I, killer I look imagine. like? I don't know. What the, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know what he looks like. Creepy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go next, and I cannot let go of Blexit. Oh, right. Blexit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It is an abbreviation. And the Blexit fallout. Of the Blexit fallout. Well, for folks who don't know, uh, Blexit is an abbreviation of the phrase Black Exit. And we uh, are talking about this pretty much because of one man who, if you listen to this podcast, you know that we cannot let him go because we bring him up all the time. <laughs> and that is Kanye West. So Kanye uh, tweeted out earlier this week that he did not take credit for designing these Blexit T-shirts. So there were these T-shirts going around um, through Turning Points USA. It's this conservative group that had basically the the goal of it was to urge black people to leave the Democratic Party. Right. That's what the the theory is behind Blexit. So Kanye took to Twitter and he said, I never wanted any association with Blexit. I have nothing to do with it. But then he added a sort of more interesting tweet. He said, my eyes are now wide open 
open and now realize I've been used to spread messages I don't believe in. I am distancing myself from politics and completely focusing on being creative. Three exclamation marks. He's so, running. No, it's, 2020. It's Kanye no, 20, out. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Kanye out, yeah. No, but so, I think some people were saying that the T-shirts, and they were kind of really basic and like, not his yeah, the design. And so he was like, I can't have no parts of that. Like, the thing that's that struck me, isn't him. that amazing that yeah. that's what makes <laughs> it all fall down for Kanye <laughs> is like a bad design yeah. on the logo. Uh, yeah, but, like, I don't want yeah. any parts yeah. of yeah. that. I mean, the design struck me when I first looked at it. I was like, the, the, the X looks like a cross between like a really like <laughs> – Chinatown knockoff Air Jordan logo yeah. and like and like maybe the United Way you know it was like yeah. what is this it, thing yeah it was yeah. this whole thing and and Candace Owens who was Who's, like the activist say turning or whatever point USA, be, yeah. behind that uh, and so she's like taking full responsibility for this and saying that it this is just about her and it's she's not really about sorry it's president. not about the president because uh, President Trump we don't know if he knows about what happened with Kanye and what he tweeted <laughs> but he was asked about Kanye yesterday yesterday and he said he's he's a good guy so he doesn't seem to feel like there's a fallout yeah. <laughs> all right well ron why don't you close things up for us i think it's time for something really serious uh, if we uh, turn our eyes to the south shetland islands part of antarctica there is a <laughs> you see it like it's just like we're all supposed to know where this is well i've worked on this it's the bellingshausen research station and uh, it is actually a russian not a German ah. facility. And the Russians who are there, you know, there's not a lot to do at the station in the South Shetlands. And so they have a library and they have books and they have a certain number of books and they read them. And apparently it's really important to the people who are reading them that they be left undisturbed. And this one particular individual, his name is Sergei, uh, was reading books and being interrupted, in a sense, by having one of his colleagues there Tell him the ending. Oh, you're reading that. Well, it, it turns out in the end she is not dead at all. And and Sergey got a little upset about this and um, <clears throat> stabbed his colleague Oleg. Well, I yeah, missed this. That's, and that's, um, that's a little extreme. And uh, Oleg has been evacuated to Chile, where he's apparently recovering in a hospital and oh. is going and to be okay. But Sergey doesn't. But Sergey Sergey turned himself into the director of the station and has been repatriated to St. Petersburg and arrested and charged with attempted murder. So is there not like an argument that he's trying to make that, you know, there is some, you know, grievance that, you know, telling, you you know, spoilers Suddenly, I, I, no, look, I am not an attorney. You know? I'm not an attorney, <laughs> but I. This was justified. So the guy it, is. It's justified homicide, I think. <laughs> oh but he's a, but, the, but he didn't kill the guy. He no, stabbed no, no, no. him, but the, no, the it's man attempted. is still alive. So, that's it's right. Att- <laughs> but but I think when you stab somebody, it is regarded as um, at least an attempt to as do them to, harm. To, yeah, and uh, yeah. so if you stab them, in is it not an attempt to do me harm when I when you give away the ending? That's what I'm wondering. It's a warning. I think it's a. I think it's a warning to everyone that spoiler alerts can be taken very seriously. Very yeah. seriously. Very you seriously. don't. You don't want to play around with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for now. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics podcast. Mm-hmm.